Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Friday, August 24th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we are going to talk to the VFW as we do every Friday. To find out about the latest and greatest that's going on with that fantastic organization, of course, a veteran service organization and one of the main ones, it's also one of the ones that's uh, particularly focused on the issues facing those of us who deployed to war zones. Although that's not all that they do, because you see the VFW, to be a member, you have to have deployed uh, to a war zone, you have to meet the requirements, but they work on behalf of all veterans, so if you uh, tune in, or sorry, if you keep it here, the VFW will be in just a bit later on, and before that, well, we're going to replay one of our recent fantastic interviews, this one with Mansoor Shams, the Muslim Marine. He's a gentleman who is uh, trying to build an understanding uh, between the military and Muslim communities. He's based out of Baltimore, and he came in studio to talk to us about you know, what it is that he does and why it is that he does it. It's to increase understanding within the Muslim community of the military and within the military and veteran community of the Muslim community. So trying to build bridges over there. But before we get to any of that, it's time to bring Jake Hughes onto the microphone. Jake, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Eric, how are you? I'm okay. My uh, wife returned from her trip last night and also my mother arrived. So she is uh, now in town. So I don't know if she'll be putting 14 comments on this morning's video like she has on some of the other ones. <laughs> in the past because uh you know she was uh, obviously still sleeping when i left but you can always count on mom yeah i mean that's basically uh the way that it goes and uh other than that it's friday uh i remain committed to my idea that it should be much harder to get a driver's license than it is a uh, good 80 percent of the people on the roads should not be driving and today my uh my upset was essentially that people weren't using their turn signal you know what I mean? Just basically turning without letting the person behind them know. And when you're moving along at a good clip and someone decides they're going to shift lanes or take a turn to the left or right, that's a dangerous thing. And considering that I was uh, nearly involved in a horrifying car accident a few weeks ago and actually just narrowly avoided it, and as we talked about, I guess it was last week, I just uh, i am very extra sensitive to it right now. So to all the people out there on the roads, if I am ever made dictator for life of the united states which uh there's a there's a significant possibility that that will happen anything could happen yeah uh the first thing i'm going to do is make it harder to get your driver's license everyone is going to have to retake the exam and it's going to be an exam that i come up with on my own and if you don't ace it you fail it it's one of those deals it's like when you do uh what was it navy knowledge online or army knowledge online and you had to sit through a powerpoint and then take a test at the end yeah one question wrong you're taking that test over baby and you're sitting through the uh, the PowerPoint, too. Not only that, but in this uh, utopian future that I predict, 
uh, will happen. Dystopian. No, utopian. Perfect. If I'm in charge, that's I know I knew which word I was using there. Utopian. So uh, also, if you fail that thing like two or three times, you don't get to take it again. Sorry, public transportation or taxis or something like that. That's going to be what you have to do. And think of how little traffic there will be if this plan of mine comes to fruition. It'll be fantastic. Well, you know what's uh, not fantastic is a congressman being accused of using campaign funds illicitly. What's even less good than that is when that congressman is a Marine Corps veteran and is accused of lying and saying that he was using those funds to purchase uh, golf balls for wounded warriors when in actuality he's alleged to have been choosing and purchasing shorts and pants uh, for a trip to Hawaii. Hawaiian shorts. Well, Hawaii shorts, according to it. So I think he was talking about specifically new shorts for the trip because, well, you need new shorts if you're going to go on a trip. Can't just go to Hawaii in the same old rags. Yeah. I mean, what would people think if you showed up to a place that you were visiting for a week and you were wearing the same thing that you wear back home when they never see you? they would think you were some sort of garbage person. Exactly. So Representative Duncan Hunter uh, is alleged to have done all this stuff. He stands accused. He's been indicted, along with his wife, who was the one who, in the uh, communications between them, apparently suggested and recommended that he get those shorts at a golf uh, pro shop so that they could say he was buying golf balls for wounded warriors. They've both been indicted. Now they've both pled not guilty. He did talk to a TV station, as we mentioned yesterday, out in uh, in California and said, essentially, I didn't do any of this. This is a political hit job. They're doing it right before the election because he is up for re-election uh, in November. Uh, he says he welcomes the uh, court case because he's going to be able to prove that he didn't do anything wrong. We'll see. Now, if it is proven that he didn't do anything wrong, which based on the communications that have been released, although I still don't know, they haven't been very clear on what those are, where they came from, if they're text messages, emails, whatever the case may be. Let's say they do somehow prove that he didn't do anything illicit or illegal. Maybe the thing about the Hawaii shorts was some sort of bad joke from his wife. I'm just saying, hypothetically speaking. What does that look like then if it turns out he didn't do anything wrong and it does, the the charges were filed right before the election? That doesn't look good. Nope. But we'll see because we have to wait for the court case. Again, innocent until proven guilty. Everybody is. It's not just for the people that you like. It's for everybody. <laughs> innocent until proven guilty. And again, we don't know him. He is, We've had several Congress members, uh, you know, senators, congressmen, congresswomen on the show. I don't personally have any stake in Representative Duncan Hunter, uh, but, you know, it doesn't matter. He is innocent until proven guilty. He's been indicted. Hey, a lot of people have been indicted for things, and uh, it's been proven that they didn't do them. There does seem to be some proof of exactly what's going on with him, uh, you know, but, but we'll see. That's for the court of law to decide, not the court of public opinion, as we talked about with Joe Shinelli yesterday. Our friend Jeff Zizulowitz over at the Navy Times has an interesting story over there of a Norfolk sailor assigned to the aircraft carrier George H.W. Bush that apparently had saved up quite a bit of money, Jake. Oh, really? Do you know how I know this? How do you know this? Because this junior sailor, this was an aviation bosun's mate airman, so you're talking an E-3. His name was Uriel Gerardo Olivas. He offered $10,000 to an undercover law enforcement official that he believed was a hitman to kill someone. Ah. 
Where's an E3 in the Navy coming up with ten grand? That's the first thing that stood out to me in this story. He may have been lying about having that money to this uh, alleged hitman. So, yeah, he promised to pay $10,000. I, I Again, where's that $10,000 coming from? Of course, uh, you know, there, there's no word on who the target of the plot was, who he was trying to kill. If this kid had $10,000 as an E3 in the Navy in his, in his pocket you would probably assume that he was involved in something illicit and that he was getting money from some other source. Yeah, because E3s don't make that much money. No, for most of them, it's what? Aren't they making like a thousand bucks a month, a little bit? Something, something like that. Something like that. I don't know, a thousand, two thousand bucks a month, whatever it is. You're talking half a year or a year's salary, essentially, that he was offering to kill someone, which I it's just it's it's pretty fascinating. Uh, attorneys are reporting to the Virginia pilot uh, is saying that attorneys said he was trying to take out his wife, Ooh. trying to get rid of his wife. Now, again, we don't have many details on this, but. You know, a lot of young military members get married, kind of spur of the moment thing. Some of them get married just to get out of the barracks. Uh, you know, they want to live out in town. They think the grass is greener on that side of the fence. Hey, met a cute girl or cute guy. I'm going to get married and get that housing uh, allowance. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. One of the reasons uh, that they do that, and this is something that doesn't happen overseas, but does happen in the States, the housing allowance in the States. So let's say you are authorized, uh, let's just say $1,000 to live in Jacksonville, Florida, right? If you find an apartment for $500, you get to pocket that extra $500. You get the full amount regardless of what your rent is, or at least that was the way it was when it I is. got out. It, it was is. when I got out too. Yeah. So it still is. In Europe or anywhere overseas, you got exactly what your rent was and nothing more, nothing less. That to me seems like... Um, a better option there. I think that they should move to that in the States. When I was living in Jacksonville, it was great to have that extra money uh, in my pocket every month uh, from the rent that came in. But uh, it just, it, it, for other reasons, I think it just makes more sense in hindsight to just give them exactly what they're supposed to have for their housing allowance. Uh, but anyway, moving back to uh, Mr. Gerardo Olivas, I would call him Airman Gerardo Olivas, but I don't think he's going to be one of those for too much longer. He gave a down payment of $500 in July and promised an extra $10,000 when the job was finished. Again, are you going to take out a loan? <laughs> he's Go, taking out a payday loan for a hit payday job. Payday loan for a hit. Well, he's not allowed to take out payday loans anymore. The military made those illegal. They're not supposed to give those to uh, military members. But can you imagine? Maybe he realizes, well, I can't get a payday loan. Huh. What are we going to Goes into Navy Federal. Yeah, what would you like the what would you like the loan for, Mister Airman Gerardo Olivas? Uh, well, uh, I'd like to have my wife killed, and it's going to cost at least ten thousand uh, dollars. So I'd like fifteen thousand, and then uh, I'll be able to cover my overheads with that extra five. Yeah, sure, approved. Yeah. Give him the stamp on there. I mean, what do you do? I again, it, just based on <clears throat> what we know about uh, these uh, young sailors, soldiers, Marines, and airmen. He didn't have ten thousand dollars. No way, unless he came from a family that had money, uh, which occasionally happens. I guess that you enlist in the military uh, when you already have some money uh, in in the bank. Most likely not. Most likely this is not a uh, this is not something that uh, was ever going to happen. He's already had an Article Thirty Two hearing uh, where an officer weighed the evidence, made a recommendation uh, to the commanding officer on how to handle it. 
Um, he could be prosecuted for threatening to murder a fellow sailor and trying to kidnap, pay one sailor to kidnap another, according to the charge sheets. Again, this is being reported by Navy Times. So it appears that the young airman uh, tried several times to get his <laughs> wife killed and only the last time went to an undercover federal agent. And when those charges were filed, perhaps maybe the guy who had on the smoke deck, he was Maybe he brought it up just kind of hypothetically, like, hey, uh, you know, if, uh, if, if I were to ask you to kill my wife, how much money would it take for you to do that? What are you talking about? Oh, he was for real. Oh, a couple months later, the guy goes there. But, um, yeah, so he is uh, in pretrial confinement, has been since July. Uh, so Jeff Sisulowitz writes in a, in a very good Jeff Sisulowitz way. He could not be reached for comments. <laughs> yeah, I bet not. Uh, he also faces charges for using marijuana, stealing basic allowance for housing. We we're just talking about BAH, uh, $500 there. So stealing more than $500 from his BAH. And what was the down payment that he gave uh, to the guy? 500 Oh, yeah, look at that. So maybe we were right about this guy <laughs> using his BAH to try to act like he's got a little bit more money. Um, yeah, so th this is a, a very interesting thing. Here's another interesting thing. He is a airman. He's an E3 in the Navy, right? Right. He enlisted in 2013. He's been in for five years, and he is an E3. What's going on there? What he did he do wrong? Well, yeah, he must have been busted, I would say, at least uh, once or twice there. Because typically, you're putting on E3 within the first year and a half yep. that you're in. I mean, typically, if you don't come in. I came in as an E3 because I had uh, uh, some stuff in my background yeah, that they same gave here. me credit for. So I came in as an E3, and then I put on third class like less than a year after I got in, uh, was promoted there. This guy enlisted in 2013 and is still an E3. So... Normally, if you haven't been promoted by the time your first enlistment comes up, that four-year enlistment, which it appears his did come up, you will be not allowed to re-enlist. You're, you're a low performer. Or if in that first enlistment you went to captain's mast in the Navy and were reduced in rank, again, you're likely not going to be re-enlisted. At least that's the way it used to be. But you know what? This makes me think of another Jeff Zazulowitz story, one that we had him in studio to talk about, and that was Peter Mims. Do you remember Peter Mims, Jake? The name sounds familiar. He's the little lunatic who was hiding on the ship for like two weeks. That guy. Yeah. Okay. Who, it turns out, had some similar things to Mr. Gerardo Olivas, not trying to get a hitman to kill a wife or anything like that, but uh, had been defrauding the Navy for BAH. He was divorced but didn't disclose that, so still kept getting that BAH as opposed to being a... a put into the barracks or getting single BAH, was hiding on the ship uh, regularly. They couldn't find him several times before he went missing the big time where the captain had to declare man overboard, even though they had a pretty good idea he was somewhere on the ship. This guy was a walking red flag, but was getting like 4.0 evals. <laughs> Is it because they need to keep people in? Do you think that's why all this ridiculous nonsense keeps happening with people able to... Uh, basically be the lowest of the low as far as performance and still be able to stay in the military? I think so, because similar things happened during the surge in Iraq. I remember there was a guy in my unit that had been in for five years and still in E4 and had never passed a PT test. <laughs> but the problem, but the thing is, every time he would come up for trouble, we would get a new first sergeant. Oh. So he kept getting, oh, we'll give him another shot. We'll give him another shot. Yeah, we can fix him. Exactly. I'm the one who's going to fix this. Uh, yeah, there, there 
I, I remember a time where if you screwed up, you got out. And I remember a time where if you got a single DUI, you were gone. You were tossed to the wind. Now I'm hearing about people who are putting on chief after getting a DUI five years earlier. Like, what? That used to be a you're gone thing. Now people are getting promoted after getting a DUI. I mean, that, that's insane to me. Really? There's yeah. an old there's an old joke from the old school army that said you couldn't be an E7 without a DUI. Yeah. Well, but now, now in the army? No, it's a career killer. But you would think so. I bet you if you take a look, you're going to find uh, quite a few of them on people's Oh, yeah, because pe- people toss under the rug. I've told the story before. Uh, I had a first sergeant that was actually caught coming on base drunk while the person driving his vehicle was also drunk and was a corporal in that same unit. So, wow. And this guy didn't get reduced in rank, just got moved to the motor pool. Thanks for listening, Joshua Dominic Prado, first-time listener checking into the show. I, yeah, you know, and there were there were times where a buddy of mine got a DUI when we were stationed overseas, and he was uh, just about to put on chief, and we were like, well, guess that's not going to happen for him. No, it did. It did. He was a sailor of the year at the command, too. I mean, it, it, it happens. And I started seeing, by the time I got out in 2011, more of a change to where some things that had previously been seen as the career-ending, career-killing variety uh, no longer being that. I mean, you know, there are several things. I know someone who went to rehab like two, three times while they were in, had drinking issues, drug issues, uh, attempted suicide once or twice, and not only was allowed to re-enlist, but eventually put on the khakis in the Navy. I mean, it's, it's, it's odd to look at it from an outsider's perspective where I saw people lose their careers over much less serious stuff, uh, and now we see people getting promoted after doing that. And I think it does have to do with the fact that the military is hurting for recruits. We've seen the numbers. We've talked about it here on the show that, okay, Jake and I have put on weight after we got out of the military. While we were in, and certainly when we enlisted, I was in pretty darn good shape. Yep. Actually, I was a little bit lighter than normal because I'd had mono shortly before I joined the Navy. But I lost like 30 pounds that summer um, and was a little too light. But now there is a huge segment of the population of recruiting-aged individuals that are not eligible. They're too fat bad teeth, bad feet, uh, all sorts of things, drug convictions, uh, they're on Ritalin, they're on this, they're on that. There are so many disqualifying things that are uh, uh, afflicting so many people that it's just put them in a situation where if they kick out everybody that they'd like to, they'll be hurting even more. And again, this goes back to... uh, For me, it always goes back to the years like 2010, 11, 12, when the Navy decided, hey, we need to cut 60,000 people and we're going to do it through this program that was designed for first term sailors, E1s through E4s, like this young sailor from the George H.W. Bush who tried to have his wife killed. This guy, he would be someone that under the perform to serve program, as it was known, he'd be out of the Navy. And that's what it was designed for, for your low performing first term sailors. They decided to expand it and they basically got rid of uh, a whole bunch of people up through E6. They got rid of a whole bunch of us, myself included. And for me, I never even got looked at to stay in because they'd already given away all the spots for that year in my my year group and in my rate and all that stuff. And, you know, again, I've talked about it before. I didn't like how it ended, but I was okay that it ended. Uh, you know, 13 years is a long time. I was at the point where, yeah, I was going to do seven years and retire, seven more years and get that sweet retirement check coming in every month. 
but I was kind of exhausted, kind of burnt out, kind of disillusioned with a lot of the stuff I was seeing, particularly at my last command where I've talked about it before. I volunteered to go to Afghanistan to get away from that command because I was so miserable there, despite the fact that I was on a tropical island where I got to go scuba diving every day. <laughs> the eight, nine hours uh, in the middle of the day were so bad. I was like, no, nope, send me to a war zone. Get me away from these people. Um they got rid of 60,000 people. They got rid of the sailor of the year from my ship that I was on in Guam. Sailor of the year, at least for our our department, which was most of the ship. The, uh, the repair department was basically 90% of the crew. He was the sailor of the year. He got out underperformed to serve. He was forced out. I heard about the sailor of a year on an aircraft carrier. So the number one first class of... I don't know, 500 or so first classes on an aircraft carrier forced out under this program. Short-sighted, the Navy came out and said a couple years later, like, yeah, we made a big mistake with this because what they realized was when you got rid of those first classes, it opened up promotion, and now you had second classes, many of whom wouldn't have ever made it to first class, <laughs> putting on first class, and it's, uh, you know, it's just uh, an issue that they've had to deal with. But this story is just, uh, it's a fascinating one. Again, Airman Gerardo Olivas from the George H.W. Bush uh, is alleged, according to the Navy Times story and according to uh, the Virginian pilot and the authorities, he's faced an Article 32 hearing on uh, allegations that he tried to hire a hitman for $10,000 to kill his wife. Oh, boy. That's, uh, again, this guy, five years in the Navy, still in E3. How is he still in? And is, is this a surprise to anybody? I bet if you talk to the Airedales on that ship, and he was an aviation bosun's mate, so he worked on the flight deck. Uh, essentially, aviation bosun's mates are the, well, he was an aviation bosun's mate fuels. So they're in charge of refueling the aircraft and all that stuff. Um, if you ask the people that worked with him, I doubt they'd be very surprised by this. <laughs> Just because certain things they t certain things tell you certain things about someone who's serving. If you were in the Navy for 13 years and I told you, hey, what would you think about an ABH or ABF, I guess he would actually be since he's fuels. Uh, what would you say if I told you he'd been in for five years and still hadn't put on third class or wasn't wearing third class? Now you go, oh, he's a dirtbag. He's a problem. Well... Appears he was a little bit more of a problem than anybody would have thought, promising that $10,000 and making a down payment of $500, saying, hey, you'll get the rest when you kill her, although he's also charged with stealing about $500 in BAH rate stuff. So, yeah, it's an interesting story. There always are a lot of them. Oh, and we've got uh, another comment here. So, uh, Joshua Prado is getting ready to assist with a veteran transition program in San Diego in a few hours. Ooh, look at that. Vet DT. Vet D Talent Network. So we're going to have to check that out uh, maybe later on today. Maybe we'll have uh, an interview with somebody from there coming on a little bit later uh, in the week because we're going to have a lot of great interviews next week. Again, the Randy Couture interview yesterday uh, that was supposed to air today didn't happen. Don't know what happened. Haven't heard back from him yet. Tried calling, left a couple voicemails. Obviously, something came up on his end. Uh, so we'll hopefully talk to Randy coming up soon, if not today, then early next week and get that one up. Uh, we've got a lot of great interviews views coming up next week. We're going to have Brian Stortz from Flag of, of Valor, Cardo Urso, who is uh, retired Marine Master Gunny, who is one of the people who developed the Marine Corps Combatives Program and the Marine Corps uh, Martial Arts Program, MC Map. A really fascinating guy who's now a professional mixed martial arts judge and runs a gym in New Jersey. We're going to talk to him uh, on Monday. We've got a lot of great things coming up next week. 
But we're still in this week, Jake. And coming up, we've got the VFW coming in to talk about the latest and greatest things that they are focusing on. And I want to remind everybody, there are a ton of things going on in the veteran community. And there's a team here at ConnectingVets.com that's covering that stuff each and every day. Jakerton Hughes, that's his real full name in case you were wondering. If there's something that affects vets, if there's something that can benefit vets, if there's something that vets are interested in, you can be sure that we're covering it at ConnectingVets.com. And Jake Hughes, what is the best way for people to essentially keep themselves up to date on what's going on in the veteran community and what's going on at ConnectingVets.com? Stalk us. Yeah. Hang out outside this window right here and just stare into it. There's a guy that does that every morning. He has a sign that says, I love you, Jake. more likely, more practical, follow us on social media. Yeah, we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Yeah, Jake's a fan out there. There's this one guy. You can't see him even if you're watching us on Facebook Live. But just outside the uh, the window, we're on the second floor. And if you look down lower, uh, there's a gentleman who's out there every morning with a big uh, uh, poster board that says, I love you, Jake, and has a, a very graphic drawing of uh, he and Jake on there. So Yes, it's uh, some Yowie fan art. It's it's very uh, it's effective. He certain, we certainly know he's there, so we've got that going on. All right, you're listening to The Morning Briefing here on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. As Jake said, follow us on social media, at ConnectingVets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all those places. One little click of your mouse or tap on your phone will help you be living your best veteran life. Coming up, we're going to have the VFW in studio. And before that, we're going to replay our interview with Mansoor Shams, the Muslim Marine. Morning Briefing, back after this. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer and ConnectingVets.com. That's your website, my friend. Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com is doing everything we can to connect vets every day. And the reason we do it is that each and every one of us knows what it's like to have worn that uniform and, just as importantly, knows what it's like to have taken it off for that last time. Because we are all veterans of the United States military, and we want to make sure you are living your best veteran's life. So we're giving you the news, the information, the benefit notifications that we think you need to know about, the think you should know about, and we think you'd want to know about. So visit ConnectingVets.com and be sure to follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Little click of your mouse or tap on your phone and you'll be living that best veteran's life before you know it. Speaking of veterans, my next guest is one of those. He's a veteran of the United States Marine Corps, and he's now a bit of a renaissance man. He's doing a lot of things. We're talking community activism. We're talking bringing people together. We're talking running a business, speaking engagements. You'll see him on news stations around the country like CNN, MSNBC, about the BBC, New York Times, Washington Post, Baltimore. I could keep going on and on and on, but we've only got 25 minutes to talk to Mansoor Shams, Corporal Shams, as it used to be. Mansoor, good morning. How are you today? Good morning to you. Thank you so much for that introduction. <laughs> it's, it's, it's impressive what you've been able to do, but first, let's talk about what you used to do. So tell me about your Marine Corps career, you know, where you're from, when you joined, and what you did in the Corps. Right, right. So I came to uh, the United States of America at the age of six or seven years old, uh, I'd say about 1988, 89. 
I became a citizen of the United States uh, around 92 or 93 time frame. Um, and a little bit after, well, not a little bit after, but almost at the completion of high school, I signed up to join the United States Marine Corps. What was it about the Marine Corps that made you do it? Was it, did you think, oh, cool, I'm going to get to take a sword and kill dragons like in the commercial? Or, or what was it that made you choose the Corps overall? Well, you know, I, I came from a broken home, so life was a bit challenging, I'd say. And I took the ASVAB test, um, actually under our Navy recruiter, to be very oh, honest. Wow. Uh, but I felt like, you know, I wanted to sort of accomplish something. And the few, the proud, uh, that uniform <laughs> of the Marine Corps, just being the best, I I don't want, sorry, I don't want to say anything to anybody else uh, who served. Of course, that's you the feeling to be that the that's the feeling that I got, and I wanted to sort of accomplish something and become my own man. And the Marine Corps was that way for me. I could tell you wanted to be the best. That's why you went to a Navy recruiter, but <laughs> then you ended up joining the Marine Corps. So that happens. But Marine Corps does a great job of selling what they are, and you know what? What the Marine Corps does kind of sells itself to a lot of people who are looking for that specific thing that the Marine Corps offers that the other services don't. You served in the Marine Corps for how long? I served for four years. That's right. And what do you remember about that last day, taking off that Eagle Globe and Anchor and moving out into the civilian world? What do you remember about that point of time in your life? I think uh, while there's always a level of excitement after having served, uh, there's always also this, this level of sadness. Uh, you, you know, as much as you want to go ahead and you know, get out and get back to your family and you know, uh, the, the, the world that you actually lived in at one point, uh, there's a sadness uh, because now you've become used to this brotherhood, this family, mm. uh, this system, uh, you know, which is a Marine Corps base. And, and getting out of that is not the most easiest thing in the world. What do you remember that helped you get through that process of, you know, four years of being a Marine? That's a long time and it gets burned into your soul and you're always a Marine after that. But when you no longer have that camaraderie, you no longer have that Marine Corps infrastructure kind of telling you what to do every day. What got you through that? You know, I, I think veterans face this challenge uh, every day uh, as they get out of the service, uh, regardless of what service that you you serve in. I, I happen to serve in the Marine Corps, and the Marine Corps definitely is a lifestyle. It's a it's a way of life, and you know you're used to the first and the fifteenth paycheck. Uh, you're <laughs> used to you know if you have a fever or whatever, you go to medical. Everything's on base, you know. Yeah. Uh, and now you're on your own. Uh, you have to figure everything out on yourself. Uh, it, it's not very easy. I think uh, what helped me in my particular case was that I, while, while I was serving, I completed my undergraduate education. I think I'm probably one of those few percentage uh, that when I joined the service, uh, I also joined uh, a degree program hmm. um, at Campbell University. So uh, it was interesting that when I got out of the Marine Corps, like September, October timeframe of 2004, uh, I came back in December that year to graduate uh, off of uh, that stage wow. at Campbell University. So I had no life while I was in the Marine Corps, uh, you know. <laughs> but that's uh, but I was able to accomplish that degree, which was pretty awesome. You don't need a life. You have the Eagle Globe and Anchor, and that is your life for while you're in the Marine Corps. That's and when it comes to an end, it can be difficult. And I, I've found that it's, it's I think for Marines, sometimes more difficult because it's a more regimented lifestyle than it That's is right. in any of the other branches. It is. Of course, you got out, you've gone on to do some pretty amazing things. You're a business owner. You are uh, an activist. You are someone who's doing a lot of great things in the community uh, in Baltimore, where you live and around the country. What was your goal when you got out of the Marine Corps? Is this what the goal was, or did this kind of happen organically? This definitely happened organically. I, I don't think I would ever, I was ever thinking of calling myself the Muslim Marine. Um, so in 2015, I founded uh, MuslimMarine.org. Uh, if you can't tell from the the web address, uh, I'm a Muslim and I'm also a U.S. Marine, and it, it's uh, it's a pretty uh, interesting path. 
Uh, after I came out of the Marine Corps, I went, actually went to work in the federal government uh, as an assistant to the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, uh, Bill Donaldson, uh, who also happened uh, to be a Marine. He kind of hired me right on the spot. Uh, in 2008, 2011, I went into graduate school, did a double master's, a master's in government and an MBA, uh, and then I went into business. Uh, but in 2015 uh, is where uh, I take another uh, turn, um, sort of based on the circumstances of the country and things that were taking place, where Muslims were seen as the other, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as the bad guy, as the terrorist, as bin Laden, and so on, as ISIS. And I felt uh, as uh, someone who uh, proudly served, uh, honorably discharged, uh, who also proudly professes Islamic faith, uh, that it was my responsibility now to come out uh, and showcase to America another narrative that you know someone with brown skin, black beard, uh, professing the Muslim faith is not necessarily a terrorist. To as some may think, uh, he could also be a United States Marine. Conversely, along with you offering that conduit for people, where you do have the Marine Corps background, which is something that. I think the vast majority of Americans respect, understand, and appreciate. Mm-hmm. And then if they don't understand, respect, and appreciate your, your Muslim faith, your background in that aspect, it, it's a conduit for you to be able to talk to them about it. Does it work the other way, too? I know there are some in the Muslim community who uh, don't look all that favorably on the U.S. military because of some things that have happened over the years. Uh, does it work both ways as far as you being a Muslim and a Marine? Uh, you know, I agree that there are definitely some challenges. Um you know, at, at, at the basic level, uh, that is, what does Islam say? You know, I have to go up ba- based on that. And Islam teaches that, uh, according to the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of God be upon him, that loyalty to your country of residence is a part of your faith. Hmm. So there's no conflict of interest of me becoming a United States Marine or me uh, being a Muslim. Uh, for those that have those issues, uh, my answer in general is that um, I think if we look at the demographic or dynamic of any country, let's say, Let's take, for example, Saudi Arabia or mm-hmm. uh, Iran right now. Uh, what they find is that you'll find that these people, these are Muslim nations, Muslim majority nations. And uh, if I was a Saudi, you know, a citizen or a Iranian citizen, I would be serving uh, that military. You know, right. but and I think most of us can agree, living in 2018, that many governments across this world that we live in aren't uh, according to the standard that we'd want them to be. Mm. Uh, Saudi Arabia as it is at war with Yemen and Iran. Uh, but a Saudi soldier is going to serve his country uh, because that's what his faith teaches him to be. Just like an Iranian soldier is going to serve his country because that's what faith teaches him to be. They're not going to be like, hey, you know, come give me a hug, man, um, you know, <laughs> and throw out their <laughs> weapons uh, when the two nations are at war. Now, are, are the wars justified? No, I think we can all debate, you know, wh- where that is, you know, just like we can debate with the United States of America. And of course, I do take issue with, and I have no problem saying that, with things like the Iraq war, you know, where uh, a million people are dead because of the actions of um, a president uh, who, I guess I have to say, who's incompetent to a certain extent. Uh, I served during the time of that president. Uh, this is controversial to some, but I can't, uh, I can't deny what I see in front of my eyes. And I think as an American, as a United States Marine veteran, I have every right to state to uh, my, uh, my fellow Americans my displeasure uh, with what took place uh, when there's a million people dead uh, in a country uh, where there was never any weapons of mass destruction. I'd say you absolutely do have that right, and maybe even more so because you wore that uniform. I mean, listen, there are people who disagree with each other within the military, from outside the military, but, you know, I think if people were to walk up to you and say, who are you to criticize 
uh, the United States like that, you can say, I'm a United States Marine. That's mm. who I am to criticize the United States like that. I think, I, I just want to add on that. I think there's a problem actually in America uh, that we need to sort of uh, come, uh, come to uh, terms with. Uh, that is when we look at someone like myself, uh, because I happen to be Muslim, who happens to criticize, and now now we start questioning that person's loyalty. Mm. I think it's a very dangerous area. Um, I, I don't think we allow that to happen in uh, in other realms, or, or I think actually maybe we do, but we shouldn't allow that to that conversation to happen. Just because I disagree with something doesn't mean that I'm not loyal or sincere or that I don't love my nation. I think criticism is a part of the package. I think that's a form of patriotism, mm. to be very honest. And I think the majority of people who are uh, those who would like to do something destructive and, and damaging and violent towards the United States, the people that live here, are military, they're probably not going to be trying to bring too much attention to themselves by talking about the problems. Right. That's not particularly what they're interested in. We're talking to someone who's interested in talking, building bridges, and creating understanding between Two communities that he's a part of, the military and veteran community, as well as the Muslim community. He is Mansoor Shams, and MuslimMarine.org is his website. A question for you. Does it surprise you how few of us that spent time in Islamic-majority countries, I I did a year in Afghanistan, there are plenty of people who are in Iraq, there are places in Africa, Asia, where we have spent so much time. Does it it shock you how many of us that were over there still have, um, I guess, little understanding of what Islam and the Muslim faith is about? And as you said, the differences between, I mean, Afghanistan and Iraq, there are a lot of people who think of them as almost the same place. No, (laughs) they don't speak the same languages. One of them is in the Middle East. One is not. I mean, Muslim is not this blanket thing where, as you said, everybody looks like you do, where they have tan skin and a beard. There are Muslims all over the world. There are Asian Muslims, African Muslims. Does it shock you how many veterans still don't have a full understanding of the Islamic world? The short answer is yes, I, I do. Uh, you know, you would think with that level of experience that you would. Uh, and I think that's exactly why I do what I do. Um, I think uh, being someone who is Muslim, being someone who is a United States Marine, uh, I'm in that very unique position to sort of bridge the gaps and create conversation and dialogue and also educate both sides uh, I think recently you may have heard I invited uh, General Neller uh, of the the U.S. Marine Corps, the commandant, the current commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, to my mosque um, in uh, in Baltimore. Uh, he accepted uh, my invitation, and I'd been in touch with him for some time. We'd exchanged emails, and finally it dawned on me to uh, have him over. Uh, during that exchange of emails, uh, there were sometimes questions uh, either raised by his staff or uh, I think sort of I can't remember if it was him specifically that were sort of shocking. You know, I would think that they would know certain things. You know, I, I remember one of the questions were, was around his wife being able to come or not. And I said, of course, you know, his wife is welcome to come to the mosque. You know, why wouldn't she be, you know? But I could tell that in their mind or in someone's mind in, in his team, there was this um, uh, lack of understanding uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, could his wife join him for that dinner and, and for Ramadan? Uh, and I, 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 I have to say, I was shocked because, you know, you have the commandant of the Marine Corps, and I think certain, on one side I'm thinking, okay, he must know it all, but maybe, you know, they don't. So uh, there is clearly, clearly a disconnect, and um, I, I, and it's at, at the top levels. I think it has to do, and tell me if you agree with this or not, the fact that normal things don't make the news, and that goes for everything. Guy walking down the street, 
not making the news. Hmm. Guy walking down the street naked with his hair on fire, he's going to be on the news. So I think when people think of a mosque, they often think of the story of some dark building with nefarious plotting in the basement. And there are places around the world where men and women are not allowed in the same areas. I mean, we know that to be a fact, but because those different things are so publicized, do you think that leads to part of the misunderstanding where we hear about the extreme and don't think about the average? Uh, I think it's, you have a point there. Um, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned that your own visits to countries like Afghanistan, and I, it was, I think, and I, I you know, I, I, my research so far, all right, so uh, don't quote me on this, but <laughs> I'll, I'll say it, okay? I don't, I, I don't think a sitting commandant of the United States Marine Corps has ever visited a U.S. mosque. Hmm. Very, very interesting, let alone a four-star general. I'm not talking about an uh, iftar dinner at the White House or, or at the Pentagon. Right. I'm talking about visiting a U.S. mosque. You may have visited a mosque overseas uh, while you were you know, in, in, in that part of the world, but isn't that interesting, right? Yeah. And so I, as, I, as much as I researched, I tried to find something. On, I couldn't find anything online uh, showing this. Uh, so again, going back to your point, I think it's extremely true uh, Right now, what's get, what gets reported is you have to, like, if I did something crazy, you know, God forbid, oh, yeah. oh, God, I'm sure I'd, I'd be known by, <laughs> the Muslim Marine would be known by everybody in the world. Oh, yeah. it would, <laughs> and, it, and it would happen fast. And it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's the fact that there are, I, won't, I don't want to say isolated incidents, but there are incidents few and far between that are terrorism that's carried out in the name of Islam. And I know there are arguments uh, within the Islamic community, and I think the majority of Muslims within the United States say, that's not Islam. You know, that's right. Driving over people with a truck uh, is not Islam. That's Shooting right. people, blowing... That's not what this is all about. Yeah. Uh, there are a small minority that think, yes, that's exactly what it's about. And from the outside, again, it's what you see on the news. You're not going to see uh, in New York City where we had a, a lunatic drive a vehicle uh, down a sidewalk and kill some people about a year and a half ago. You're not going to see the story of the, you know, the little uh, bodega owner who's from Afghanistan, who's helping kids in his neighborhood who might not be able to afford, uh, you know, their, their, their food. He's helping them out with that. It's again, those extreme examples are the ones that make the news. One thing that I know you're trying to do to change this through MuslimMarine.org, your website. We're speaking to the founder of that, Marine Corps veteran Mansour Shams. Mansour Shams. Well, I'm God, man, I'm tongue-tied today. I don't know why. Is that you have done things like just as simple as walking around with a sign that says, I'm a Marine and a Muslim. Ask me anything. What has that experience been like for you? Ooh, that was one of the campaigns that I uh, did last year, um, and I visited 24 states. Uh, so I, I almost I wanted to say half the United States, but I was technically 24. Uh, but yeah, it was it was uh, I'm a Muslim and a U.S. Marine. Ask anything, and it was really just to engage people in conversation. Uh, pretty much throw something in someone's face and say, "Hey, you know, you may have one perspective of someone who looks like me or believes my faith." But here's another perspective that you need to know about. And regardless if someone came up to me and asked me a question during that time, I felt that even the people that were walking by and noticed that sign, um, they were thinking, they were scratching their heads. They were, you know, every we all have different personalities. Some people are talkers and some people are not. But I can tell you, uh, you walked away with a message and at least a little bit of knowledge and education that, you know what, uh, Marines come as Muslims too. What was the most common question that you got from people in those 24 states while you were doing that? Uh, a, a lot of the questions, um, 
I would say Sharia law uh, is a big one because <laughs> that term gets thrown out like left and right and people have no clue what the heck that means. Yep. Uh, they don't know that it just means a path to life-giving water. Now, I mean, think about that for a second. A path to life-giving water, Sharia law, it tells me uh, not to fornicate, not to commit adultery, not to drink alcohol. It's sort of a personal moral code for me as an individual to live by. And that's it. And, uh, yeah. uh, and people don't know that. When it's instituted by someone like the Taliban, where their version of Sharia law, which was horrifying. We saw it. We saw women executed in soccer stadiums. By the way, that was about the only time they were allowed in soccer stadiums under that government rule there. it's That's the extreme. How do you think we help people understand that that's an extreme version of what this is, and it's not the average everyday person like yourself and the attendees of your mosque and what they're dealing with? Well, I think that question uh, assumes somehow that... The, uh, that uh, the Taliban know it. They know their faith and mm. that they're practicing their faith. See, that's, that's, I think that's the biggest that's good point. Uh, that's the biggest thing here. I think Americans need to understand that just like we have extremist groups right here in the United States of America, oh, yeah. uh, according to the FBI, we talk about white supremacy as one of the biggest terrorist groups here in America. Uh, you know, I don't associate every white person with a terrorist. I don't, at least when I walk around the street, you know, uh, I, every time there's a school shooting, I don't, I, I just hold my breath and I hope it's not a Muslim or someone who associates themselves with as a Muslim faith, uh, but it, I, you know, the, the thing is, we we have to really f- change the way we are thinking. You know, there's a book that I read. It's called "Change Your Brain, Change Your Life," and it talks about how anytime a negative thought enters your mind, let's say you know you're a white person and you look at black people a certain way, or you're a black person and you look at white people a certain way, you're walking down the street. The moment that thought enters your mind, instead of ignoring it, like you know, whatever prejudice that you have, whatever negativity you have. Talk to that thought and say, no, you know what? I don't think black people are bad. I don't think white people are bad. I don't believe Muslims are bad. That that person is bad. This person did that. But not everybody is bad, right? So the book is pretty much saying in order to catch yourself, uh, and this is every day we feel these things. You know, you can be walking down the hall and you have a thought about somebody else uh, for whatever reason. They're saying instead of just letting that thought go, because if you let it go, it becomes a part of you. You don't realize it at that moment. It's becoming a part of you. It's saying, talk to it and say, you know what? No, I am not this. No, this is not what I think. Some people, as you said, just kind of ignore those thoughts. And there's, as as hard as it is, I think, for us to, to grasp, there's something natural and genetic about people of, we all came originally from small groups and we wanted to defend our groups from someone else. The other people look different, so you knew that they were bad. Historically, that was kind of a thing, but people have evolved past that for the most part, and I think there's something still in our DNA way back where something that looks different from you, it it gives you an uneasy feeling at first. We've been able to get past a lot of things that genetically people are programmed to do, and hate, I think to some extent, is one thing that people are kind of programmed to do that we've worked mostly out of our system, but not fully yet. Mm. How do you think we reach the people who are the farthest from getting that out of their system? The people who they see brown skin, beard, oh, I know what that guy is. Hey, keep an eye on him. He's going to try and shoot somebody or blow something up. Don't let him rent a van or anything like that. There are people out there who think that way. How do we reach them or is it even possible? I think it's really about conversation and dialogue, something that I've been promoting. I've been going out there, putting myself out there. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you say that. I, I want to remind uh, the listeners that this is happening on both sides of the aisle, by the way. Oh, yeah. There's people that are of my faith that look like me, and they're fearing that that white guy, you know, you know, for whatever reason, oh, that he thinks this of them. or It's he happened. Thinks, you know, so, and on the, <laughs> on the other side of things, they're fearing that person. I think the, it, to 
it comes down to really not knowing each other. So fearing what you do not know, right? Right. So what Muslim Marine, as a founder of MuslimMarine.org, what I endeavor to do is try to get out to as many people as possible. I think the more that people know of each other, the better that it is. Um, actually, uh, recently in, in the month of Ramadan, I ran an initiative. It's called the 2929 Ramadan Initiative, where I paired veterans uh, to spend a night at the home of a Muslim. Mm. Uh, it got a lot of attention. It was it was really well received. And these veterans went and spent a night at the home of a random Muslim person, uh, a, a whole night at their house, uh, a sleepover. Uh, so there's a poll out there that sixty per, over 60% of Americans have never met a Muslim. Uh, I'm thinking of now another uh, initiative right now. I'm in the works of it. I'm about to release it very soon. How can I help bridge that gap? Um, and bring other people together because I think at the end of the day it's about bringing people together the more that people know of one another those fears are less eliminated it's interesting I remember being stationed with a buddy who was from the southwest and he made a comment about something that was on TV at my house and said something about Jews hmm. and I was like how many Jews did you know growing up out there in you know in, in the southwest he's like well I don't really know any I was like well then where's this coming from man I grew up in the northeast I grew up in a place with a very high Jewish population and what you just said is absolutely not true and that made him think about it but I think it's easy to forget that there are people who kind of isolate themselves or by geography are isolated from other groups where if you're from Oklahoma, you may never have met a Jewish person in your life. You may never have met a Muslim. You may never have met a Sikh. You may uh, equate Sikhs and Muslims. There are a lot of people who don't know the difference between what a Sikh and a Muslim is. Yes. Post 9-11, most of the violence that we saw post 9-11 was actually aimed towards Sikh people because they wear turbans. That's right. And that's associated with Islam, incorrectly in many cases. Uh, just fascinating stuff and the work that you're doing Mansoor is uh, is excellent to get people to actually interact with each other because that tends to be the key when you start talking to someone uh, unless they're just a bad person that you don't get along with it's usually you come to an understanding about each other Mansoor Shams is the founder of Muslim Marine. He is a Marine Corps veteran, and he's doing a lot of good things and doing a lot of informative things out there. Mansoor, if people want to find out more about what you're doing, if they want to get involved with what you're doing, if there's a fellow Muslim who served or someone who's not a Muslim who served and wants to create this kind of interaction with their community, how do they go about doing so? Very simple. Uh, I'm very accessible. Uh, MuslimMarine.org is a way to get in touch with me. Uh, I, I don't have anyone checking my email box. Uh, if you go there and send me an email or a message, I will get it directly to my email box. Uh, uh, social media uh, is Twitter at Mansoor, M-A-N-S-O-O-R-T as in Tom, Shams, S-H-A-M-S. Uh, I'm there as well. I, you know, I people ask me, you know, like uh, even on Facebook, I get these random friend requests. A lot of people have told me, don't do that. Don't accept everybody. But yeah. I do accept everybody. The reason for that is because I want to make myself accessible. I don't want to just be seen as the guy that's on the on the radio show or the TV screens or behind a podium. I really, really uh, sincerely want to help bridge these gaps. And so feel comfortable that if you're able to get to the website and reach out and email, even if it's a basic question, even if you want to have a talk on the phone, we will do it. We'll make it happen. MuslimMarine.org is the website. And thank you so much for joining us on the Morning Briefing. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At ConnectingVets.
Welcome back to the morning briefing on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. You know, Connecting Vets Every Day is our slogan because it's what we do, and I'll tell you why we do it. It's because each and every member of our team knows what it's like to have worn the uniform of the United States military, and just as importantly, we know what it's like to have taken it off that very last time. We know what a struggle it can be as you transition, and even years later, how you might not know about the latest goings-on in the veteran world, the newest benefit, the newest thing that's available to you. Each and every day, our team of veterans is focusing on those issues and making sure that you're aware of them. And to find out what they're working on, visit ConnectingVets.com or follow us on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is the Associate Director for National Legislative Service at the VFW. She's actually newly in that position. Prior to that, she held a pretty interesting position within the VFW that some of you may not have been aware even existed. Her name is Christina Keenan and joins us now on The Morning Briefing. Good morning, Christina. How are you today? Good morning. Thanks for having me. So you are an Army veteran, a National Guard veteran, as I understand it. Give us the Cliff's Notes version of your service, where you're from, when you joined, and what you did. So I'm originally from Northfield, Minnesota, a small town Minnesota of only 15,000 people. Joined the military. Actually, I joined the National Guard right out of high school. I was only 17 years old. And uh, I served six years in the Army National Guard, uh, d- did two deployments to Bosnia, and uh, got out in 2005. And when you got out, what do you remember about that time? Now, I know for the National Guard, it can be a little bit different than for those on active duty or those even in the reserves. But uh, from what I understand, you did two back-to-back deployments to Bosnia, uh, spending over a year in total there. Mm -hmm. When you think back to 2005 and realizing, wow, I'm not going to put this uniform on again unless it's just for old time's (laughs) sake, what do you remember most about that time? Well, I mean, it's, it's a difficult, it was a difficult moment to sort of, you know, understand my whole identity. I was sort of, you know, the person in my family that was in the military and I had been in for six years, which is, you know, a significant part of a young person's life. So, you know, I had gone back to college. So I was now a university student and just trying to kind of navigate through the rules of, you know, being a student and life as an adult outside the military. Um, You know, it can be intimidating. What did you find the college experience to be like? I've heard so many different stories. For me, first community college and then transferring to a four-year university, it was pretty seamless. It was pretty easy for me. How did college life go for you? You know, I transferred uh, several different times trying to find sort of the right college for me. And I ended up sort of landing in Paris, France at the American University of Paris and finding that international kind of education and the student body being something that I really liked, especially after being in Bosnia, working with NATO troops, a lot of European forces, and just sort of, you know, it was sort of a continuation of that really interesting international environment that I really liked when I was deployed. What's it like being not only an American student overseas, but an American student who people that you're studying with might find out is also a veteran of the military? Was that an interesting overall experience? It was very interesting because I I know that I drew upon my experiences in the military Um, when I was sort of discussing political issues and international affairs in my classes. I studied political science. And so my perspective was definitely skewed by my actual on-the-ground experience um, in a post-conflict zone. So the discussions were very interesting. Um, I made a comment about, you know, the the collapse of Yugoslavia and the imprint that Europeans and Americans had there post-war. And I was actually in that class sitting next to um, a student from Serbia, and you know, as you know, U.S. Um, you know, 
bombed Syria during the war. So yeah. that was very that was a very difficult conversation to have. But but also I think really interesting for the other classmates to kind of hear you know people who are from these places or had experienced um, you know these situations and try to maneuver those those conversations. That is pretty cool, and that you got to do it from that angle. I remember I was my minor was in European studies with a focus on trade, and there were some students at my school who were really big onto uh, uh, into the uh, the new party that had taken over in Greece, which was essentially like a socialist party, and they thought it was all fantastic, uh, despite the fact that the economy was collapsing. Mm-hmm. We had a Greek student in class who was just screaming at them like, "No, right. no, no! This is not good. I've seen it firsthand." It was, and I was stationed in Greece, so uh, uh-huh. the two of it was the two of us versus the world, the right. Greek and the guy who was station there. Exactly. We're speaking to Christina Keenan and uh, of course talking about your military career, your transition, your college career. When did you come to be part of the VFW? What brought you to the organization and did that happen while you were overseas? It happened uh, while I was in Paris, France. So I lived in Paris for 12 years um, and so it was about five years ago that a professor from my university that I had studied with um, was a Vietnam veteran uh, told me about this uh, VFW dinner and invited me to come along, knowing that I was a veteran. And so I met this whole community of veterans living in Paris, and I actually had already been in France for several years, had no idea there was a VFW presence in Europe at all, and discovered there's actually a huge presence. How many members of the VFW Post in Paris, France, are there? So the VFW Post in Paris has about 210 members. Um, So it's one of the smaller VFW Posts, but... Then you have um, many, many posts in Germany with thousands of, right. of members. Well, we have military installations in Germany and yes. plenty of people who end up uh, staying over there to work as contractors mm-hmm. on the base or maybe marrying uh, someone who lives out in town there, marrying a German citizen. Right. Uh, that makes sense. What did you find brought most of the veterans, the VFW members in particular, to France? Why were they there? Was it for work? Was mm-hmm. it for uh, really good cheese? Or, you know, what was the reasoning? <laughs> well, I mean, there there are thousands of Americans that live in Paris. And so the veteran community kind of mimics, um, you know, sort of mirrors actually um, the American community there. So there are a lot of students, people who are there with the U.S. Embassy, um, you know, working for different businesses, um, you know. But some of the older veterans from like World War II era, you know, kind of came over. And we had one in particular who came over um, through the Normandy landing uh, landings and ended up staying in France for the last 74 years. Wow. So, you know, from World War One and World War Two, we actually had a, a significant um, American veteran presence in Paris, which has very much dwindled um, in recent years. But, you know, Paris used to be really a hub for American veterans. That's really interesting to hear about that, that World War II vet. How, how did you come to Paris? Oh, in an amphibious landing craft yes. on the beach yep. right over there. Mm-hmm. You may have heard about it. So <laughs> uh, you were actually the post commander of Post 605 in Paris, right. which uh, that's a pretty interesting thing. Again, you are a younger veteran. We're mm-hmm. fairly close to the same age, mm-hmm. I believe. And most post commanders that I found, like I'm a VFW member, a full disclosure, my post 1469 in Huntington, mm-hmm. the post commanders were older. The VFW membership skews older. What was it like being a younger veteran who was a post commander of a VFW post? And because it's overseas, did the, the membership at that right. post actually skew younger than in general in the VFW? Well, when I joined five years ago, I would say, you know, I was I was one of the few young members um, it was it was mostly Vietnam veterans and a few and a few uh, World War II veterans, um, but you know very quickly within the within two to three years, a lot of those older members were physically not able to come to some of the meetings or do some of the events and ceremonies that we had. 
So they were really looking to the young, the few of younger members to sort of pull them into the ranks right. and and push them up into different um, different positions. Um, which, you know, the older members voted on and, you know, were fully behind so we could sort of carry the torch into the future and, and actually attend a lot of the, the really important ceremonies and events that we have in France. Is it something that you'd recommend to veterans trying for that overseas experience? I, I spent 13 years in the Navy, and I think eight of them were spent overseas, so I kind of got my fill of, uh, of several countries and right. seeing how things work. But as far as you going there for over a decade and seeing it from that perspective, is this something that you'd recommend other people try if it's available through work or studying mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be? I mean, I had a really wonderful experience living outside the United States. I think it gives you a good perspective because we can often get really wrapped up into you know, our own internal politics and kind of gives you a global understanding of what's happening in other other countries, other places, and gives you a view of, you know, perceptions about the United States and that kind of thing. Um, as a veteran and being part of a VFW post in Europe, I mean, it was fantastic to have that camaraderie um, with other veterans that you don't normally see, you know, or work with or right. have much contact with. So, um, you know, I think it was even more special being abroad because we really enjoyed that time together. And also just the history in Europe and in France in particular, where, you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans are buried in 11 American cemeteries. And so we can actually do ceremonies, you know, physically where battles, you know, were fought and and have that sort of connection to, you know, the place. Right. The n- direct connection that when we're over here, it's kind of in the abstract. When you're in France, you can actually go to Normandy. You can right. be at the beaches. You can see uh, the graves of those United States military members who gave their lives uh, during World War One, World War Two. I mean, we're, we're talking about thousands and thousands of us who never came home from France. Christina Keenan did, and she's working with the VFW. She is their new Associate Director for National Legislative Service. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. All right, here's the here's the tough question for you on the whole living in France thing. Mm-hmm. I said I was stationed overseas for like eight years, I think in five countries. There were some negatives. People mm-hmm. would be like, oh, you got to live in Sicily. That must have been wonderful. <laughs> it, it was, but remember, when you're not there on vacation, things are a little bit different. Stores are not open when you'd like them That's to true. be. Uh, in Italy, everybody goes on like a four-hour nap in the middle of the day. Reposo, they call it. Mm-hmm. What was the biggest drawback? What was the thing that you didn't like about living in France? If you had to pick mm-hmm. one problem mm-hmm. area, what would it be? Well, I mean, by and large, Americans tend to complain about the the bureaucracy of living in France. So mm. there's a ton of paperwork that has to be done in order to, you know, explain or justify your reason for being there. And so year after year, I had to go and do my resident paperwork. And it's it's painful, it's um, tedious, and um, but it's very characteristic of living in France. You got to have a piece of paper and a stamp. And a signature for pretty much everything. And that's Europe-wide, I right. can tell you. Having right. Particularly Western Europe is just kind of how things are done mm-hmm. over there. Mm-hmm. I had to get some sort of ID card when I lived in Italy just to be able to uh, uh, to get uh, my power turned on at my apartment. Right. Uh, right. When I lived in Greece, there were blackouts throughout the summer, and it was just strikes all the time. My favorite strike in Greece was the gas, uh, gas mm-hmm. delivery truck drivers. Oh, yeah. No gas delivered to the gas station, so we basically had to shut down uh, the AFN it's, station. It's true. In France, we have a lot of strikes, a yeah. lot of transportation strikes, but you sort of offset those things by, 
you know, nearly free health care. And I mean, I, I couldn't complain about my six weeks of vacation every year. No. Uh, yeah. And that, and that seems to be a minimum. I mean, there are people who get two, three months off, which must be nice. But also, you know, when people compare that to the United States, yeah, well, we're also a much bigger economic power than they are because we work a little bit harder at it. But, you know, when it comes to being involved in a VSO like the VFW and being stationed overseas where you were the post commander at Post 605 in Paris, France, did you feel connected to the VFW uh, back stateside? Did you feel like you guys were part of the organization or did it feel like just kind of a satellite clubhouse where you're off doing your own thing uh, mm. and nobody was really involved with you? When I first joined, it felt very much like we were isolated. Um, but when I became post commander, you know, I was attending meetings um, in Germany, which for the Department of Europe um, and got to know sort of, you know, what the posts in, in the rest of Europe were doing um, and sort of comparing and sharing you know, ideas and things like that. Um, and then I was nominated for the VFW's National um, Women Advisory Committee. So I was actually coming to the United States, to Washington, to meet with other women veterans and really the other, many other representatives from the organization. So I did have that connection, um, you know, later on um, to the rest of the organization. And just this summer went to my first VFW National Convention where I really got a feel for, you know, the organization as a whole. Yeah, I still haven't been to one of those. I've talked to so many people go, and it's like, ah, it sounds fun, but I still have yet to go. <laughs> Maybe I will. Of course, this last VFW uh, National Convention, the president spoke there, so a lot of news was made at that VFW convention. Uh, and there's a lot going on in the veteran sphere. And let's move on to talking about some of that stuff because yeah, the Paris stuff is in the past. The current now, Christina is the new Associate Director for National Legislative Service at the VFW Congress coming back into session soon. What are the big things that are on you and the VFW's radar as we move towards the next session of Congress? So obviously, the VFW is very concerned with making improvements to the VA healthcare system. Um, you know, the VA Mission Act was already passed, but it will take time to sort of implement um, the effects of, of that. Um, and of course, you know, ensuring that funding for that and other programs um, continues is going to be really high on our um, on our list of things. Um, we really want to end sequestration for good, which is essentially spending caps, which affect our programs, critical to military and uh, veterans. So, you know, the programs being passed and accepted is, is all good, but, you know, we want to ensure that the funding is also there, too. Um, and also, one issue, one issue that's really big right now is concurrent receipt. So we have still hundreds of thousands of retired service members who are not eligible for the concurrent receipt of their earned retirements, pay and also the VA disability benefits, which is really unfair. If you've earned, you know, spent 20 years in the military and you earned your retirement, but you also have a disability, you know, these are two very different benefits. You shouldn't have to choose between, you know, and only get one. You should really should be getting both. Um, so we're really urging Congress to, you know, improve all of these things that really affect the veterans' day-to-day -day life. It's a fascinating thing that a lot of people don't realize that if you have uh, a disability and a retirement, basically there it, it there's a maximum between the two of them that it can be added up to. You don't just add the two together and get both of them. Is there anything being done or anything in the works to actually get that change? Is there any legislation on the horizon or already uh, moving? Yes, we do have legislation that we're supporting. Um, when it has what, that has to do with concurrent receipts. So there's HR 303 and S66, the Retired Pay Res Restoration Act, and so we're really going to be urging you know our lawmakers to accept and pass these pieces of legislation because it's really um, something that affects many many of our veterans. 
It is. And then there are some things that only affect uh, uh, portions of the veteran community. And one item that's very specific to those who are eligible for a VFW membership is the Blue Water Navy issue. That, of Mm -hmm. course, being the Navy vets off the coast of Vietnam. They were clearly exposed to Agent Orange. They've shown many of the same health issues that those who are boots on the ground uh, and exposed to Agent Orange have yet they're not eligible for the same benefits. This is something that I know the VFW has been heavily involved in and invested in because, listen, if you enlisted at 18 years old and served in Vietnam, Mm -hmm. you're now pushing 60 at a minimum. So that generation is getting older and older. We're losing more of them Mm -hmm. each and every day. It's just not right that they don't have benefits for this. What's the status on that? Are we moving closer to getting any sort of, uh, of clearance on the Blue Water Navy issue? We are. We are moving closer. So the House passed the Blue Water Navy bill unanimously, which, you know, as you know, doesn't happen all the time um, in Congress. And so it will be we very, you know, we hope that the Senate will pass it swiftly and that it will reach the president's desk. We've we firmly believe that Congress is is supportive of this bill and will pass it. Um, So it's it's long overdue for these veterans who were, you know, definitely exposed um, to Agent Orange and have been de- denied their VA benefits for, for many years. So we really want to get them back into the fold and up to speed with their medical. That is a big thing, and it's not the only thing. Another medical issue, again, that affects those who are eligible for membership in the VFW, the burn pit issue, where we've seen legislation being put forward, uh, bipartisan legislation coming from uh, Congressman Brian Mast and Congresswoman uh, Tulsi Gabbard to Army veterans. Uh, Of course, he was an EOD soldier, lost both of his legs uh, in Afghanistan. The burn pit issue, it looks like maybe moving even a little bit faster than the Blue Water Navy issue, perhaps because it's more recent, it's fresher in people's mind, it's mm-hmm. got Mast and Gabbard pushing it along. Uh, how confident are you that we're going to get some some solid finishing movement on the burn pit issue as far as getting people registered, making sure that we know who was exposed and all that stuff? Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard to say with the burn pit issue. More research really needs to be done, and so we're hoping that Congress will support all of that. Um, moving forward, the burn pit registry is really important for veterans who think they might have been exposed while they were deployed to sign up for, because all of that will help sort of push things along and move things forward. We've talked to uh, senators on the show. Senator Johnny Isaacson said the uh, you know the burn pit issue. We kind of do need to get that moved along and use the Blue Water Navy issue mm-hmm. as, a, as an example of what could happen if we don't just kicking the can down the road, as he called it. What do you think the chances are, as putting you on the spot as the new associate director of national legislative issues at the VFW, what do you think the chances are that we do see some sort of closure on the Blue Water Navy issue, considering that it's something that's, you know, 50, 60 years old at this point? Well, I think, you know, the way that the House voted unanimously on this bill really shows that I think Congress understands the importance of this. And so we're, we're quite optimistic that the Senate will pass and the president will sign it as well. The Vietnam veteran generation, I'm sure as a VFW member you know, has been instrumental in changing how people look at the military, essentially because when many of them came back from Vietnam, they were not treated well. They were not treated well by their fellow veterans. They were not treated well by uh, the, the civilian world writ large. They went through hell when they came back from hell. So they went through it mm-hmm. twice, both over there and on the home front. They have been, again, working tirelessly to make sure that didn't happen to any future generation of veterans. 
Uh, for me, making sure that those who were afflicted by something like Agent Orange in the Navy who were serving over there in Vietnam, taking care of them after they've taken care of us for so long is certainly a no-brainer, I yes. think. Don't you yes. agree? Definitely. Absolutely. So this is one of the many issues. There's also, you know, some good things going on in the veteran world out there. I know at the VFW National Convention, uh, the whole organization got together to talk about the positives and the negatives of what's going on around the world and around the VFW. Let me ask you generally, as someone who, who lived in France and who now works for the VFW on the national level, what do you think the state of veterans is? How do you think things are going overall? Because we hear the negatives. Right. We hear the VA is basically crumbling and falling apart and they don't know what they're doing. It's not all bad, though, is it? It's not all bad. And, you know, the VFW and the other veteran service organizations that we partner with are really working tirelessly to make improvements for the, in the lives of veterans. And so, you know, we really do have a dedicated staff, a huge membership. The VFW and its auxiliary comprise almost 1.7 million people. And the impact that they have had, the organization has had, especially on Capitol Hill, is really significant. Um, so, you know, whenever we're talking to lawmakers, they really do, you know, perk up and listen to um, veterans when they tell their stories, their personal uh, stories of, you know, difficulties that they've had, um, at, whether it's medical or other, other things. And so... You know, we really are step by step um, making progress um, on on things that really have been sort of left to the to the side for many years. Um, so that you know, the optimism that I have that the veteran service organizations are really pushing forward improvements um, for the lives of veterans, um, I think, is really what sort of drew me to the organization to work for them in the first place. As I mentioned earlier, Christina, and we're speaking with Christina Keenan. She is the Associate Director of National Legislation Issues for the VFW, recently taking up that post. You and I are kind of uh, unicorns. Mm -hmm. uh, we're in a very small group, a minority group, VFW and VSO members just in general under 40. The numbers are decreasing. Fewer and fewer younger veterans are signing up. How do you think we change that? Because as you said, what the VSOs are doing is so important. It does things for all veterans, mm -hmm. not just for their members. And if those voices are someday lost, right. it's going to be a very dark day for vets. How, what do you think we need to do to increase our, our compatriots of our similar ages to mm -hmm. joining the organizations? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you know, we can really be leaders within the organization and within the veteran community and to try to, you know, just, just show, you know, the impact that the, these organizations have had on us, our involvement, um, and I think that sort of resonates through our friends and people that we've, you know, our, our colleagues and think people that we've, we know, um, hopefully to encourage other younger veterans to be part of it. Um, I know in Paris, once, once I joined and I told other friends of mine and they joined and it sort of, um, you know, ballooned into um, a post which is, has a very, young, uh, you know, a very active membership of younger veterans. So, um, you know, I think we can really be leaders, especially Women veteran can really, really also be pioneers in, in these kind of organizations and take up leadership positions, run for those office, you know, those officer positions um, and have an active role in your VFW post. And I think that will sort of resonate throughout the organization. 
It's interesting that you mentioned that. Women veterans, the largest growing segment of mm -hmm. the veteran population. Think back to my post. There was only one woman member who was there with any kind of regularity. Uh, we had some other members who didn't show up all the time uh, or didn't show up regularly. But there were a lot more veterans out there. And I think reaching out to those groups and being more visible, Definitely. which is something that you're doing, certainly, as former post uh, commander over there mm -hmm. in Paris, France, and now as the associate director for National Legislative Issue. National Legislative Service of the VFW. Uh, you know, Christina, when we talk about the VFW, and we've only got about a minute left here, I want you to give me, put you on the hot seat, why should a younger veteran or any veteran consider joining the VFW? What do you think the main uh, benefit of joining the VFW is? I think the main benefit for joining the VFW is to give back. So whether you're just a, a regular paying member or if you're going to get involved with your VFW post, um, you can actually... Just being a member, you can support veterans and veterans' issues and the improvements of those issues. So membership is really important. And if you, if you want to give back to the veteran community, join the VFW. We've been speaking with Christina Keenan, Army National Guard veteran, former post commander of the VFW's Post 605 in Paris, France, and currently their associate director for National Legislative Service here on The Morning Briefing. And that does it for this week's edition. We'll be back on Monday. We're going to have retired Master Gunny Cardo Urso, MMA legend, New Jersey Sports Hall of Fame member, judge at Bellator, UFC, all those different things. Going to talk to him on Monday, and uh, we'll keep you updated on that Randy Couture interview when it's going to happen. It will happen. It just hasn't happened yet like it was supposed to. We'll let you know, and hopefully you'll hear that early next week on The Morning Briefing. On behalf of myself and Jake Hughes and our wonderful guests today, including Christina, again, if you want to find out more about the VFW, that website is vfw.org. Have a great weekend. Stay safe, and we'll see you Monday. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.